Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 39 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, October the 30th. First, I'll be talking to Lachlan Donald. CEO of Australian tech company BuildKite. COVID-19 has forced businesses to build new software overnight. BuildKite gives developers the tools they need to keep up with demand for software built with speed, scalability and security. And I'll be talking to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver about how the market has been doing during the recession and how long it will take to recover. But first, let's talk to Lachlan Donald. Lachlan, tell us about BuildKite. Uh, you guys build software for companies? Right? We build software uh, that helps software companies build software, test it, and then release it. So as, as software has got more complicated over time, the process of actually the craft of assembling it has gotten more complicated. Historically, uh, software companies, you know, remember the, you know, talking about the 80s and 90s, you like release cadences of every 12 months or every two years. So, you know, as the world has moved online, digital transformation has happened. Uh, software delivery has moved much more towards the real-time end of the spectrum. We work in a space called continuous delivery. So we're about building tools that help some of the best software development teams in the world ship software faster. So uh, continuous delivery, in our, in our view, is one of the most critical factors in businesses that are successful. You know, when we look at when we look at customers that have amazing businesses, you can, you can see how it kind of cascades down into all areas of how they do delivery. Delivery for me is like being able to execute really well on your, on your product release pipeline. I would imagine a lot of these companies would be asking for things like parallel testing. Yeah, so that's essentially our bread and butter. So, uh, you know, the, the space we're in continuous delivery, it's been around for, for 20 years. So what, what we discovered, so we're, you know, where Bill Kite was originally founded in Melbourne. Um, so we've kind of grown out, up out of the Australian tech industry and from high growth tech companies. So my background was CTO at a, a Melbourne company called 99 Designs. And uh, at, at the time, other co-founder was working at a, another Melbourne business in Vado, kind of look, looked at all, all of the existing tools uh, and, and realized that there were a lot of them, but none of them were good for this new breed of high growth companies. So, you know, like the, you, your question on parallel testing, like that, that's exactly spot on. That, that's at the heart of it. So like the way that uh, software development companies 
build complex software, you know, and you're talking about like millions of lines of source code, like changes every five minutes, uh, hundreds of developers and trying to organize those things into like a cohesive process. The way they do it is with test suites. So when you're a very little company, your test suite's quick. You know, it takes 30 seconds to give you feedback. Like, I've made a change. Have I broken anything? No. But, you know, you're talking about uh, like customers of ours, like, you know, Shopify or CultureAmp, Vado, 99designs, like uh, their, t their test suites are, will take an, an hour or two hours to run if they just ran them. So continuous delivery tools like BuildKite take those test suites, carve them up into small pieces and run them over the cloud. And so you take, uh, you know, Shopify's example, for instance, they joined as a customer when there were 300 people or 300 engineers. Their tests were taking 40 minutes and their mandate was to get it to under five minutes. They used BuildKite after basically breaking all of, all of our kind of competitors and the previous tools and got it down to five minutes. And then they've been able to keep their builds to under five minutes, exactly using the technique you talked about, like massively, massively parallel test suites. And since then we've grown with them to, you know, they're two and a half, two and a half thousand engineers uh, and kind of busy driving the, the state of global e-commerce at the minute. So your parallel testing suite reduces the testing time from hours to minutes. Is that right? Yes. So that's, you know, that's the, that is a small slice of, of what continuous delivery does, but it's one of the most meaningful ones. Uh, and it kind of ends up being one, one of our key differentiators. So, you know, the, the other things that sort of really differentiate us is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Historically, companies would have different tools for each areas of their business to do this. So like you might have one tool for your mobile team or you might have one tool for your web development team. So uh, BuildKite is the only continuous delivery tool that, that every company needs and that you can use for every project effectively. So we're, we're kind of, we, we provide a one, the one tool that unifies all of the engineers across the process. So, uh, I mean, do, do you have, uh, do you run it on premises? That is, that is a really interesting question. So that was, that was kind of the sticking point that Keith, my co-founder, came across. Um, you, so he was working in Vado at the time. And, you know, they asked him a question which can be boiled down to, uh, do we know where our source code is at all times? And uh, so, you know, at the time, tools polarized onto on-premise tools, which you run entirely yourself in-house or entirely in the cloud tools. So, you know, for something like uh, continuous delivery where 
uh, you need to be right close to company source code and their secrets and like proprietary information. It's a really tough balance because you've got to either choose between on-premise, which is slow, hard to scale, but the security characteristics are good. You know where everything is or entirely in the cloud uh, where you've got to hand off your source code and secrets. Keith's, Keith's thinking was well, surely there is a middle ground of this. And so one of the areas that, that Bill Kite has innovated is uh, our hybrid architecture. So we're somewhere in the middle is, is the long roundabout answer to that question. So we're a hybrid architecture where we give you uh, what we call an agent, which you can run on your servers or your cloud, uh, your infrastructure. Uh, and so that runs the heavy lifting of the tests uh, without Bill Kite ever getting access to the source code and secrets. But then we have a SaaS side of the business, the control plane, which is kind of the interface that developers interact with and kind of all of the external integrations. So BuildSkype runs that. So the, that architectural separation has that compromise uh, turns, out, turns out to be magical because it's exactly the right compromise between those two worlds. So you get strong security, but you also get unlimited scaling and kind of all of the other niceties that sort of cloud computing brings you. So, you know, we kind of, we built BuildCut because we, we thought that CICD was, was broken for growth companies. Uh, and so the result is something that we've built from the ground up to, to support growth companies. So basically what you're offering is a compromise where they're kind of, kind of in premises, but you're attached to it. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, basically we give you, we give you an agent, which you can install on kind of anything, right? So like we've seen some, some fascinating use cases for that in that, like there's the, the kind of basic stuff, like, uh, you know, running it on AWS or on windows servers for your tests. But then there's also fascinating use cases. Like we've resonated really strongly with uh, the self-driving car industry so uh, Cruise is one of our customers and uh, a couple of others. And so what they, what they do is they run the agents on, on their cars to test software before it's deployed there. So with kind of the emergence of uh, next-gen tech like uh, IoT and you know, other, other things like AI, uh, start throwing out acronyms here, BuildCut Bill provides like that hybrid architecture, provides some really interesting ways that you can do new things. Now, what about security? I mean, uh, how do you get around that? Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, uh, someone was, someone observed to me the other day, uh, you know, we we're trying to explain the security model and uh, they said, oh, you don't, you don't add security. It's just your architecture is such that more security is not needed. So, the architecture of BuildCode means that we never see source code, secrets, proprietary information. The, that stays on the customer side of the fence. And, and that's really key. You know, that, that means that separation of concerns means that BuildCode can focus on scaling the hard bits of the user interface and the control plane whilst the workloads kind of stay on the customer side of the fence. Does that, does that make sense, Leon? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But, uh, I mean, do, do you have... Uh any security testing or anything like that? Uh, in, in terms of how we approach building software? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're a kind of different shaped company of, uh, you know, largely composed of engineers that have all come from, you know, high growth. Melbourne and Australia's best technology companies. So we've all got backgrounds in, in security. Uh, it, it's, one of the, it, it's one of the key points that we, we view as a differentiator with BuildCut is we've architected it so that we, 
don't need to be experts in security, but we still have a staff full of experts on security. Uh, you know, we do a whole lot of things like uh, we work, there's a, we work with a whole lot of bug bounty programs to bring in the broader community of security professionals. And we work with uh, several Australian security companies for uh, pen testing and things like that. Well, Lachlan, uh, we'll watch Bill Kite with great interest and thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you. And now let's talk to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Okay, well, Shane, despite the recession uh, globally, the markets seem to be doing quite well. What's your view of it? I guess on the face of it, uh, one can question whether markets have become detached from reality, and that seems to be a fairly common concern. My view, though, is that share markets traditionally lead uh, the economic cycle, and of course this has been a very brief cycle. We had that the coronavirus shutdowns and expected hit to economic activity, and of course share markets fell in advance of that through late March or through late February going into March, and then of course What's happened since then is that share markets started to anticipate a recovery, and we have seen that, that to some significant degree, uh, economic data coming out of Europe, Japan, US, China in particular, and, and Australia has shown some quite sharp recovery from the shutdowns we saw earlier in the year. But more importantly, I think uh, interest rates were slashed and we saw massive levels of government support for economies. And of course, the reduction in interest rates has made shares cheaper. It's effectively the discount rate and it's, uh, it's made shares look more attractive. And so investors obviously took advantage of the fact that shares fell heavily into March and then have bought the share markets. And of course, that's buoyed them ever since. Now, of course, the ride since about uh, June, the last few months has been a bit more volatile a bit rougher. The US share market's gone to a record high a month or so ago, but uh, other markets have been wobbling around a little bit. But still, I think they've been reasonably well supported by very low interest rates. The anticipation of further improvement in economic activity and, of course, uh, the anticipation of some sort of vaccine in the next 12 months. Well, of course, the, the markets are very volatile because they're reacting all the time to news about, uh, I mean, whether it's uh stimulus payments in the US or whether it's uh, the uh, coronavirus cases and deaths. This is, this is quite global. It is quite global. And of course, uh, yes, we are seeing that volatility and that may go on for a while yet. Uh, the September quarter is, is known for volatility that often continues into October or through October. Uh, we've got the US election, which is a big source of uncertainty for all sorts of reasons. If it's a very close election, it could be contested. Donald Trump has, has not assured everyone that if he loses, he'll actually leave office. Uh, so that's a bit of an issue. If on the one hand, the markets might think, well, it'd be better to have the Republicans that come back in or Trump come back in because he would keep the corporate tax rate cuts and deregulation in place. Whereas I think markets are also coming around to the view, well, if we get uh, Biden and he gets control of the Senate, that means more stimulus. Even though we might get those corporate tax hikes, we might get more stimulus coming through. And that in turn would be positive for markets. So markets are sort of uh, split and a bit confused as to which way to go in response to all of this. And in the very short term, we've seen a lot of uncertainty about whether there'll be a new stimulus package in the US before the US election, which has also caused volatility. That's all, of course, against the backdrop of rising numbers of new cases in Europe, surging cases in Europe, and not just Europe. Uh, UK is figured very highly in that as well. 
US is seeing a resurgence again in the US. If you look at the graph, it looks a bit like a third wave. First wave was going into the highs of late March, early April, then another another rebound into July, early August, and then of course um, another one more recently. I, I guess markets have sort of not reacted to that as much as might have been feared, well, for a couple of reasons. One is the number of deaths is running lower than it was earlier in the year. If you look at developed countries, the number of deaths are running around one quarter, um, the level they were running back in April, whereas the number of new cases is three times higher. Um, that partly reflects new, you know, more testing. It partly reflects better treatments once you do get sick and, of course, uh, better protections for older people. So the markets are sort of thinking, well, OK, we're seeing the surge in new cases, but as long as deaths stay down, then maybe we won't have the return to a hard stay-at-home shutdown that we saw earlier in the year or indeed we've recently seen in Victoria. So that's why the markets perhaps haven't been quite as concerned about the rise in new cases, but there is this focus on whether there'll be more stimulus um, and there is that risk out there that there might be more shutdowns ahead. So that's, that's caused markets to remain a bit volatile. Uh, one of the heartening things is that uh, Fauci has come out over the weekend saying uh, we expect to have a vaccine round about December. And in fact, there are three companies now developing vaccines. They're in uh, uh, third stage tests. Yeah, there is good news on the vaccine front. We, we yet to get the results of those tests. Debate about how... Uh, effective the uh, the vaccine will be it, it may not be as effective as the measles vaccine which if you get it then you in theory you won't get you won't get measles it might be more like the flu vaccine the problem with the flu vaccine of course which is about 50 percent effective is that there's numerous strains of flu whereas in theory there's only one strain of coronavirus so hopefully anyway at least the uh, the vaccine should be at least 75 percent effective if that's the case then that combined with better treatments would help substantially uh, slow down its spread. So if that comes along by December, then well and good. I, I suspect it's more likely to be early next year before it starts to, or into next year before it starts to have a meaningful effect, because you've got to, even when the vaccine comes along, you've got to, you've got to vaccinate a sufficient number of people to sort of stop the virus circulating in the community. Um, and that's going to probably take six months or so um, going into next year. The, the problem with recessions is that they do tend to last a lot longer than predicted and um, uh, no one is expecting a v-shaped recovery here i mean we're probably going to have elongated u's and a whole lot of w's here. <laughs> well of course the uh victoria's had a w um it's uh, it had a, a lockdown earlier in the year which saw it slide in a recession then it started to come into recovery and i'm talking here not gdp data i'm talking about monthly data. If you look at it in GDP, it's kind of smoothed out a little bit, but for all intents and purposes, it's effectively had a W. If you look at, for example, the ABS releases payroll jobs figures, it comes out on a fortnightly basis, but they reported it for each week. And that, that shows a, a clear um, second wave down. And of course, as it reopens again, it'll start to pick up and it look like a W. Um, so as long as uh, we keep getting these waves of coronavirus, then we're going to keep these zigzags up and down in economic activity. I guess, though, if you look at other parts of the world where there hasn't been the hard lockdown that Victoria had, I, I think it looks like a bit of a square root sort of situation where you come down very hard, you get this initial recovery, which um, just comes with reopening. You know, New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia have all seen some of this. And then you get this, you get to a point where the 
extra recovery, the final part of the recovery takes a lot longer. So what initially comes back are all the shops in your local shopping centre. A lot of the work, yeah, a lot of the jobs come back, you know, something like 50% of the jobs have come back in Australia that were lost through the initial shutdown. Uh, and then the final part of the recovery is a lot slower. And that's the, the sort of the top part of the square root, or some people would call it the Nike swoosh, initial sharp upswing and then a slower phase. That slower phase will be because of all the more lasting effects. You know, the fact that it's going to take travel to t longer to come back. Uh, the, the fact that we're going to have a uh, lower level of immigration for a long time, which means the property market won't fully recover in a way. I mean, parts of it have bounced back already, but if you're going to have 200,000 odd less immigrants coming to Australia for the next couple of years, that's going to be a bit of a drag, quite a big drag, I would suspect. Um, students coming to our universities, that's going to have an impact as well. And lots of uh, activities have been permanently changed, you know, working from home. You may go back to a situation where everyone can go back to the office, but I reckon that a lot of those people who have experienced working from home will say, yeah, I don't want to be there five days a week, but I wouldn't mind being there two days a week or three days a week. And the bosses are quite happy with that because it lowers the costs. And then you come in for your two or three days a week to do your collaboration or whatever it is. Um, so that's going to have an impact on cities as well. Um, and so that, that final part of the recovery, I think, will be a lot slower. And that's the way I would see it. You get this initial slump down that was earlier this year. A lot of industry was protected that was able to bounce back. And then the final full recovery is a lot slower and uh, takes a lot longer and could take up to two years. Well, how would that affect markets? I think markets to some degree are sort of allowing for that. It's, it's hard to tell really, as long as interest rates stay low, then that provides a big offset to it. I guess if you're just trading on the basis of economic activity indicators, you would have, you may have missed out a little bit on the initial fall going into March, and then you probably would have missed out on the initial recovery in share markets uh, thereafter. But I think Share markets are, of course, driven not just by economic activity, they're also driven by interest rates. And that's the big thing here. The reduction in interest rates, not just short-term interest rates, but bond yields, um, has made shares look a lot more attractive You know, for a long time. I guess people in Australia have been doing the equation. They say, well, I, I can only get 1.5% uh, on my bank term deposit, um, so therefore a 5.5% dividend yield is pretty attractive. Now they're saying, well... And that dividend yield is grossed up for franking credits. Now they're saying, well, looks like I'm only getting 0.7% on my uh, bank term deposit. Well, in that context, a, uh, say, 4.5% dividend yield, even allowing for the cuts in dividends, is still quite attractive. And so that provides a bit of a buffer for share markets. I think, though, one has to allow uh, that in a world where it's going to take a while to fully recover, that the gains in share markets will be somewhat more constrained than the huge rebound we've seen from the March lows. So I reckon over the next 12 months, share market gains will be a lot slower than they were over the six month or over the period since the low point on March the 23rd. Well, Shane Oliver, that's all very, very informative and thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the coronavirus is hitting markets. The ASX dropped 1.7% after US stocks on Monday notched their biggest one-day drop in a month on fears that rising coronavirus infections will dampen business activity and as another session passed without a deal for pre-election fiscal stimulus. The S&P 500 fell as much as 2.9% in afternoon trading as the latest infection data undercut hopes of the virus being contained. However, the benchmark index trimmed its losses to end 1.9% lower 
its biggest one-day loss since September 23rd, as Nancy Pelosi, Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives, expressed optimism on a stimulus deal. The sell-off was broad, with economically sensitive sectors such as energy, financials and industrial groups under pressure. Travel and ledger companies sustained heavy selling. It followed a gloomy day in Europe, in which Frankfurt's benchmark DAX index slumped 3.7%. Germany's SAP tumbled as much as 22%, its worst one-day fall since mid-1990. And the Australian economy has emerged from its first recession in 30 years, the Reserve Bank believes, but is warning that the recovery will be marred by growing business failures and cash-strapped households struggling to pay off their mortgages. Deputy Governor Guy de Bell on Tuesday told a Senate estimates hearing that it appeared the Australian economy grew through the September quarter. The economy contracted through the first six months of the year, with the June quarter posting the largest three-month slowdown since the end of World War II. It was the first time since 1990-91 that the economy had contracted for two consecutive quarters. But Dr DeBell said the economy probably expanded over the previous three months, even taking into account the shutdown of Victoria through all the period. Dr DeBell said while some parts of the country were doing well, such as the West Australian mining sector, others, including tourism, education and services such as entertainment, were struggling. Extra monetary support will be necessary, with RBA Assistant Governor Michelle Bullock using a speech to say any recovery will be rocky. Ms Bullock said while the nation's banks were in a strong position, there were clear economic challenges. These included expectations that business failures would increase even as the economy started to improve, as many firms were being kept afloat by government support programs, temporary insolvency relief or loan repayment deferrals. And Moody's Investors Services said mortgage delinquencies will continue to increase over the next year. Australian mortgage delinquency rates have increased because of the economic fallout from coronavirus, rising to the highest since 2005 in Victoria and the highest since 2013 in New South Wales by May. Mortgage delinquency rates will continue to increase over the next year given the ongoing economic fallout from the coronavirus. Economic conditions will remain uncertain, driving delinquencies higher. The economic recovery will be tenuous over the next year with labour and housing markets remaining soft and government and lender support measures ending. These factors will drive mortgage delinquency rates higher. Over the next year, mortgage delinquency risks will be high in regions with large economic and labour market dependence on industries such as tourism, hospitality and retail, which have been hit hard by coronavirus disruptions. And Victoria's COVID-19 lockdown has seen the state sink to third position compared to other Australian jurisdictions on key economic performance indicators, its lowest level in over three years. But it remains above the other big economic states of New South Wales and Queensland, the latest Commonwealth Securities State of States report shows. A key factor driving the relative success in economic performance has been the relative success in suppressing the virus. Every quarter, ComSec measures the performance of the states through eight key indicators, economic growth, retail spending, equipment investment, unemployment, construction work, population growth, housing finance and dwelling commencements. For the first time, Tasmania has topped the rankings for the third consecutive quarter, buoyed by new home building and demand for mortgages. The ACT rose to second position, its highest ranking in just over three years, based on its relative economic growth performance, falling unemployment and investment by business. Victoria lost ground on falling retail spending and demand for home loans. And retailers reopened their doors to Melbourne shoppers from midnight on Tuesday, after more than two months of shutdown. Shoppers are expected to flood stores following months of online shopping and click and collect only. 
However, there will still be limits on the number of people allowed in stores and venues at one time. Face masks remain mandatory and people must maintain 1.5 metres from others. That includes more than 2,200 TAB retail workers who are set to return to their counters in Victoria, just in time to take bets on the Melbourne Cup after Premier Daniel Andrews began easing the restrictions on Melbourne's three-month lockdown. The reopening is regenerating momentum for the removal of state border blockades, including between New South Wales and Victoria, and the blanket closure still being imposed by the West Australian Government. The 112-day shutdown in Victoria caused by a second wave of coronavirus prompted other state leaders to either reimpose border closures or maintain existing ones, rather than open up by July, as initially agreed by the National Cabinet in May. This exacerbated the economic malaise. At National Cabinet on Friday last week, all states and territories except WA agreed to a three-step plan to reopen their borders by Christmas. Victoria's three drive-ins will be permitted to operate from Thursday, and from November the 2nd, the Tamir family's three rooftop seminars at the Classic in Nelsonwick, Lido in Hawthorne and Cameo in Belgrave will also resume operations, with a cap of 50 patrons. But indoor cinemas, both in Melbourne and regional Victoria, have been given no target date for reopening, a situation the Village Entertainment Chief Operating Officer Gino Mirari said was beyond frustrating. And Westpac has taken a $1.2 billion charge against second-half earnings to cover a record money laundering fine and the mounting cost of compensating customers for years of misconduct. The charge is the latest blow to Australia's oldest bank, which last month was hit with a $1.3 billion penalty for the country's biggest breach of anti-money laundering laws. Earlier this year, it deferred paying a dividend as bad debt charges swelled amid the coronavirus-induced recession. And two days out from its full-year profit result, ANZ has warned its second half of 2020 cash profits will be hit by an after-tax charge of $528 million as a result of large items including remediation costs and accelerated software amortisation. The charge impacts statutory profit by a similar amount. And Bendigo and Adelaide Bank has revealed a $2.5 billion fall in the value of frozen loans in a trading update, while revealing borrowers from Melbourne account for around one quarter of all its deferred loans. According to the bank's data, Victoria accounting for 50% of residential and more consumer support packages, while business and agribusiness customers accounted for 55% of support packages offered. There are a total of 1,500 Melburnians relying on the bank's offer to freeze loan repayments for residential and consumer loans out of a total of 5,190 customers across the nation, while there are 943 business customers from Melbourne not making payments out of 3,556 spread across the nation. The bank provided the detail in an unexpected first quarter trading update timed to coincide with its annual general meeting. In aggregate, the bank said the number of frozen loans was down 69% from the peak recorded at the end of May. The number of frozen loans at the regional bank is down 74% for retail customers and 49 for business customers. And the corporate regulator's chief enforcer, Daniel Crennan, QC, has resigned following revelations the government agency incorrectly paid about $70,000 in rent for his Sydney home. ASIC paid $69,621 in housing costs on behalf of Mr Crennan, equal to $750 weekly rent in 2018 and 19, after he was asked to relocate from his long-time home of Melbourne to ASIC's Sydney office. In a statement on Monday, Mr Crennan said he intended his resignation to Treasurer Josh Frydenberg with immediate effect. This came after the chairman, James Shipton, stepped aside for an independent investigation into the payments of more than $180,000 that ASIC made to cover the cost of managing his international tax affairs. The Auditor-General raised serious concerns about both. 
Shipton is unlikely to survive as chairman because a corporate conduct regulator must be seen to be beyond reproach and due to the political hostility towards the remuneration of executives at government-owned Australia Post. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will strongly consider a broader overhaul of ASIC's leadership model once he receives an independent review by December into its remuneration and procurement practices. And in an extraordinary testimony to a Senate committee that exposed senior divisions at, at the Australian Securities Investments Commission, ASIC's acting chairwoman, Karen Chester, threw Mr Shipton under a bus and distanced herself and other senior commissioners from Mr Shipton, who was stepped aside from an investigation, and Deputy Chairman Daniel Crenman, who resigned on Monday. She said the full leadership commission at ASIC was not aware of Mr Shipton's $118,557 KPMG tax services bill that was paid for by ASIC in 2018, until after the Australian National Audit Office expressed concern in December this year. Ms Chester and fellow commissioners Danielle Press, Sean Hughes and Cathy Armour were not fully aware of the matters at the time, she said, adding that they found out in mid-September 2020 about the auditor's concerns about the allowances for housing and tax services. Ms Chester suggested that most of the commission was kept in the dark about the auditor taking issue in August 2019 about the $750 a week housing payments for Mr Crennan after he relocated from Melbourne to Sydney for work. And Coles same-source supermarket sales rose 9.7% in the September quarter, boosted by a popular Little House collectibles promotion and strong demand for food and groceries both online and in-store by lockdown Victorian shoppers. The 9.7% same-source sales growth compared with 7.1% growth in the June quarter and beat most analysts' forecasts. The September quarter sales were buoyed by stronger-than-expected e-commerce growth and heightened demand in Melbourne, where cafes, restaurants and food courts were closed, and supermarket shopping was one of only a handful of permitted activities. Excluding Victoria, same-sort food sales rose 7.7%. And a lobby group, representing hundreds of Australia Post licensees, plans to each send the Prime Minister $5 in support of Australia Post Chief Executive Christine Holgate, the money is intended to cover the cost of almost $20,000 of luxury watches gifted to senior executives. The licensees praised Ms Holgate's changes to the organisation, claiming they saved their businesses. The licensed post office LPO group said hundreds of post office licensees had expressed their support for Ms Holgate, insisting they would be out of business if not for the changes she had made to the organisation. In 2018, Australia Post secured a lucrative commitment from Commonwealth Bank, Westpac and NAB to contribute $100 million a year to fund banking services in post office branches. These branches operate in towns where there are no banks and they have been doing it at a loss. The deal is the heart of the Cartier watch controversy, but the lobby group hailed it as a much-needed lifeline for post offices struggling to turn a profit. And the federal government's Jobmaker hiring credit is not suited to many SMEs that are still in a recovery phase, according to professional accounting body CPA Australia, as new estimates suggest the program will not create as many jobs as initially promised. On Monday, Treasury officials revealed the hiring credit is expected to create only 10% of the new jobs promised by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg when he unveiled the $4 billion policy on budget night. At the time, Frydenberg said the wage incentive, which is targeted at younger workers, would support around 450,000 jobs for young people. However, Jenny Wilkinson, Deputy Secretary of the Treasury's Fiscal Group, told Senate estimates on Monday that Treasury believes the number of genuinely additional jobs created by the program will be closer to 45,000. A UK-based Coca-Cola European Partners PLC 
agreed to buy Australian bottler Coca-Cola Amatil, creating a global producer of many of the world's most popular packaged drinks. The deal values Sydney-based Coca-Cola Amatil at $9.23 billion Aussie, that's $6.6 billion US, a 19% premium to where its shares traded last week. The target's board intends to unanimously recommend the offer, according to a statement on Monday. The $12.75 per cash offer would give Coca-Cola European partners an even larger international footprint and immediate scale in the Southern Hemisphere and allow it to expand into Asia. It would be the largest deal involving an Australian company so far this year, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. The deal underscores how soft drink bottlers are under pressure to consolidate amid slowing sales, partly from the coronavirus pandemic, but also a broader shift by health-conscious consumers away from sugary drinks. Beyond fizzy staples like Coca-Cola, Fanta and Sprite, the Australian company has diversified into whiskey, rum and tequila, as well as beer and ground coffee. An iconic retail chain, Riot Art and Craft, has collapsed, reportedly owing more than 100 staff millions of dollars in entitlements. Liquidator Nicholas Giasumi of Dye & Co. said the chain's 57 stores around the country, including 11 in Queensland, have been shut permanently, with 140 staff terminated. Employees were estimated to be owed around $3.5 million in wages and entitlements, Mr Giasumi said. Mr Giasumi said COVID-19 would have had an impact on the chain's financial position, but it was too early to say if it was the only reason for the collapse. He would not confirm how much was owed to creditors. And COVID-19 has changed shopping. According to the latest survey by LivePerson, the world's first AI conversational cloud, a survey of 63% of Aussies found they missed retail shopping a lot or a little during COVID-19. And 86% feel that physical storefronts are still important when making retail purchases. But only 48% believe they'll be shopping as normal by this time next year. In the meantime, 72% say concerns about the virus make them worried about shopping in store. And 82% now rate contactless shopping as important. When asked specifically about their online customer service experience and why they abandoned purchases at checkout, the results are sobering for retailers. 42% have been unhappy with the delivery details or options. 34% want to do more research before making a purchase. 30% have been unhappy with the price. 20% have not been able to find everything they need. And homewares group Adairs has reported a 22% bump in sales over the past four months, despite store closures in Victoria, as people keep spending money online buying furniture, bedsheets and towels. The growth was entirely driven by online shoppers, with online sales soaring 134%, while store sales dropped 0.6%. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Rob Wilson, CEO of Incent, a loyalty reward company using blockchain to provide a different consumer-centric reward offering. Consumers are rewarded for their entire expenditure, including bills, rent, shopping and utilities, which can be redeemed to cryptocurrency or cash. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking bizbell.zed, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.